Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, I'm Dr. Anna Volkman. I'm a speech and language therapist and researcher based at University College London, and I'm very pleased to be guest hosting this podcast today for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Now, gait is a person's pattern of walking, and walking involves balance and coordination of muscles so that the body is propelled forward in a rhythm. There are numerous possibilities that may cause an abnormal gait. In my own research, I study language and communication as a means to help understand what might be happening in someone's brain And in a similar way, researchers are looking at people's gait and disorders that might affect it. Now today I'm joined by three researchers who are at the forefront of gait research, analyzing gait and undertaking studies to see what it can tell us. I'm delighted to introduce Miss Rihanna McArdle, sorry, Dr. Rihanna McArdle, Dr. Keir Young and Dr. Sylvia Deldin. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us today. Hiya. Hello. Now, um, can I start by asking you to all introduce yourselves properly? So let's start with Rihanna maybe. Hi, so I'm Rihanna McArdle. I'm a research associate at Newcastle University and I'm a psychologist by background, but now my research really focuses on the application of gait analysis and remote monitoring techniques to improve the way that we diagnose and care for people living with different types of dementia. Thank you, Rihanna. How about um, Sylvia? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Sylvia Delding. I'm a bioengineer by background, and I'm a senior research associate at Newcastle University in the same group as Rihanna works in. My main research really focuses on the use of wearable technology. So, for example, accelerometer sensors, um, wristwatch sensor, etc., for quantifying gait, uh, walking, and digital mobility outcomes. I work with both data collected in, in laboratory environment, but also, um, which is quite exciting, with real-world data. So, data collected in free living condition at home environment. I work with the aging population and also in uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease, for example, and dementia. Natural walking, naturalistic walking. So, um, and last but not least, uh, Kia. Thanks, Anna. So my name's Kia Yong. Uh, I'm a senior research fellow and Alzheimer's Society fellow working at the Dementia Research Centre, Queen Square Institute of Neurology. And my main area of work involves working with people living with various degrees of dementia-related visual impairments. So these refers to difficulties perceiving what or where things are arising, not from eye conditions, but rather uh, diminished ability uh, to interpret information caused by damage, particularly to areas towards the back of the brain. Um, And my area of working uh, also focuses on use of technology, including sensors like inertial measurement units or code of motion capture technology, to really evaluate care interventions to maximize independence of people living with various degrees of dementia-related visual impairment. Fascinating. Thank you very much. 
Now, um, just to start with, um, Sylvia, can I come to you first? And could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about what gate is? I don't know if everybody uses the term gate a lot. Um, so tell us what can go wrong and how you can actually measure gate. Of course. So um, gate is the way that we walk, that we move. And maybe not many of us know that gate is also referred as the um, six vital sign. So yes, like you would measure, for example, your blood pressure or your body temperature to understand how well you're doing, you know, your health. Gate, so the way that we walk, can also serve as a tool for evaluating our health. Maybe we can relate also this concept to the fact that, you know, as we age, we might think that we get older, we get slower, we walk, you know, with a, a lower velocity. And, you know, research, for example, has shown that uh, gait together with age and specifically gait speed, so the, way, the, the velocity in which we are walking, can really predict life expectancy and then for mortality. So if we look at research, gait uh, is really um, being shown to be a biomarker, so a biomarker of aging, as I was mentioning, but also of pathology. So a lot of different uh, diseases like Parkinson's disease, like, for example, uh, dementia, dementia subtypes, um, have shown specific gait pattern and impairment in their walking. And if we can think about it, gait is really our unique signature, our unique fingerprint. And so it can monitor also the way that we are progressing, whether it's aging, whether it's in a specific disease. I think that the relevant and important thing here is really uh, thinking about gait not only as an automatic and mechanic activity, okay? People might just think, okay, we put one foot in front of the other. It's not so simple. In fact, gait involves um, a lot of brain activity, if you want, and control uh, of cognitive function as well. Everything starts from our brain. And after, after myself, I think Vion also will touch upon this and Kier as well. And obviously, attention, decision-making is very important while we walk because we're not just walking, we might be walking and talking to someone, we might be walking and watching our smartphone. So sometimes maybe people, it might have happened that, you know, they are distracted and maybe they are tripping on the curb or maybe they're even falling. You know, it's not so funny for uh, the person who is feeling that, but we might have seen videos of people falling you know, while watching their the mobile phone. This is because we're tasking, so when we're distracted, so we take away the attention, the cognitive control, we might uh, therefore have some gait problem of gait um, impairment as well. But, you know, this is all very interesting, but, you know, if we do measure blood pressure, if we do measure our temperature, we use some instruments, okay? So how can we actually measure gait and walking? And I can start by saying that typically and traditionally, um, gait is measured in, in a lab, so in a laboratory a controlled environment. People come along and we use quite expensive and bulky, I would say, system, for example, 3D uh, motion capture system, so three-dimensional motion capture system, where you can use some reflective markers on your body, and with infrared cameras, you can really track the movement and so quantify gait, if you want. I don't know, maybe, maybe people have seen, you know, The Lord of the Rings, where Gollum was um, the actor, uh, he had a lot of markers positioned on his face, and therefore, with this camera, you can reconstruct, if you want, the movement. We do the same, but with gait and booking. Other, other instruments, for, uh, for example, are instrumented matrices. 
they are pressure sensor based mattresses where you can walk on and you can derive a lot of uh, measure of gait, for example, how long your step is, how quick you are walking, for example, the rhythm of your steps, etc. Um, and it's like re really leaving your footprints on the sand if you want, you know, uh, and then you can measure, you know, a lot of um, outcomes from gait. Um, obviously, all of these, so all the data that we can really get from the laboratory can give us a massive amount of useful information that has been used in the past, as I say, for describe um, and really identify gait and gait impairments in a variety of pathology and diseases. Um, if you want to describe gait uh, within our lab, we have, if you want, come up with a, a model of gait uh, that can be described in five different domains that are clinically relevant and very understandable. Uh, the five domains are pace, so how fast we walk, rhythm, uh, our rhythm of uh, walking, for example, the step time, the time to take a step, variability, so what's the difference between one step of the other, asymmetry, so the difference between, for example, our right and left steps, and also postural control. So, for example, our wide, uh, our base of control is while walking, etc. This is all fascinating, but the real question is, you know, if we measure gait and how we walk in the lab, is is it a realistic picture of our behavior, of our habitual gait and the way that we walk? Does it possibly just capture maybe capacity? So what people can do because they're in front of someone or asking them to walk normally in a certain way. And so there might be something called the ozone or white coat effect. So people might just like not perform as they usually do just because they're in front of the doctor. As I was mentioned before, if you go to the doctor to measure blood pressure, it might be higher, not because you have a higher blood pressure, but because you're under pressure and maybe you're, you're anxious of being in front of a doctor. So um, it's really important for us to be able to measure gait and walking when people are in their everyday life, if you want, in a real world environment. And we can do now because, you know, with the new technology, we have a lot of wearable technology, wearable sensors that I was mentioning before, that can help us really measure the way that we walk in real life condition. We can still use them in the lab and we can validate and we can see whether they are really robust in um, quantifying, if you want, the gait characteristic that we know we can quantify in the lab. But then we can also use them outside of the lab and get maybe more interesting information also about gait. Um, so I think that's uh, an yeah, overview yeah. of gait. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, you've gone over a lot of areas and I, I really like the idea that gait is, is like a um, fingerprint, the way that, that kind of analogy, that's really helpful. I think also for any of our listeners who aren't in the health and research fields, that makes it really accessible. And now you've talked a little bit about some of the common problems that cause um, abnormal gait, but I actually wondered whether, Rihanna, you could tell us a little bit about your research, because I know that gait isn't just one element of your research, but kind of the main focus of your research. Yeah, thank you. So my research has really been kind of um, born out of the Parkinson's disease research that Sylvia holds quite a lot of expertise in. And there's been a lot of work, as Sylvia said, that has associated gait with cognition. So when a person's cognition begins to decline, we also see that their gait may actually predict that cognitive decline. For example, there was a meta-analysis published a few years ago that suggested between 12 and 6 years before a person would receive their diagnosis of dementia, their gait would actually begin to significantly slow down and it might be a red flag for developing dementia. 
And so there has been quite a lot of work that's been unpicking this, showing that gait impairments are prevalent in dementia, even though we might not expect it to be a, a disorder that would have motor problems within it. However, there hasn't been a lot of work done on what type of dementia a person might have and if gait could be predictive of what type of dementia that person would have. And that's really where my research has come into it. So I've done this throughout my PhD and I've continued to do it within my postdoc. Um, so I'm really interested in two of the most common types of dementia, Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body disease. And although these look very different on paper, when you actually see a person with Lewy body disease in clinic, sometimes it can be very hard to tell if they have Lewy body disease or if actually they have Alzheimer's disease. Absolutely. And so there's a range of biomarkers out there that is trying to unpick this problem and trying to find out how can we definitely know if someone has Lewy body disease or how can we be more confident that someone has Lewy body disease. The problem with a lot of these biomarkers, which are generally like imaging biomarkers, um, such as DAT scans for Lewy body disease, are that they're quite expensive and not everybody would receive one. So you would, if someone really looked like they had Alzheimer's disease, you probably wouldn't send them on for a DAT scan to check if they've got Lewy body disease. And so we really need to find a screening tool that can help us decide who we need to send on for further assessment. And that's what I wanted to find out if gait analysis could be useful for. So as Sylvia said, we've got lots of different methods to do this. Um, I've used both the gold standard techniques, the instrumented walkway within the lab, and also the newer techniques using wearable technology, both in the lab and in the real world environments. And I've been trying to find out if Lewy body disease have a unique signature of gait impairment compared to Alzheimer's disease. So do they have a specific walking pattern that we could be confident in saying this is Lewy body disease? The reason that we are interested in the unique gait, gait impairment pattern is because we know that discrete gait impairments are associated with specific cognitive domains. So for example, in the literature, we see that people who have attentional or executive dysfunction, they often walk slower with greater variability of their gait. So they're changing their steps up a lot more in comparison to someone who doesn't have attentional or executive problems. And so we thought because there's different cognitive profiles in Lewy body disease and Alzheimer's, they would also have unique gait profiles that would reflect this. So in the results from my work, we did find that Lewy body disease have a unique signature of gait impairment using both gold standard techniques and wearable technology techniques within the laboratory environments. So people with Lewy body disease are a lot more variable when they're walking. They change their step lengths a lot more and their step times a lot more. And interestingly, they're also a lot more asymmetric when they're walking. Um, so their left and right footsteps look quite different from each other. And that was quite an interesting finding because actually they seem to be more asymmetric in their pathology as well in the early stages of disease. And this might give us a bit of an indication that actually gait is reflecting what's occurring in the brain, although we do need to do further work to validate this. And it also showed us that perhaps it, it might be a useful tool for differential diagnosis of dementia subtypes. Not only was it useful for picking up differential diagnosis dementia subtypes, it was also useful at identifying just general cognitive impairment in comparison to our age match controls who don't have any cognitive impairment. So people with Alzheimer's and Lewy body disease all walked slower with shorter footsteps. They had more variability in their walking and they also took wider steps. So we can see that actually it is a good um, feature of just picking out cognitive impairment in general, if that was what your question was. Yes. 
However, we did also look, as Sylvia said, at gait in the real world using wearable technology. So we placed a small sensor on people's lower backs and asked them to wear it for seven days. And they just went off into their environments and walked around as we expected. And again, we could see that there was signatures of gait impairment, um, but significantly diff differed the uh, dementia subtypes, but it was much harder to interpret in the real world environment. So. For example, we found that we could differentiate Alzheimer's and Lewy body disease when they were walking in very short walking bouts. So for example, if they're only moving for 10 seconds or between 10 and 30 seconds. But once they got to longer steady state walking in the real world environments, these differences were much less apparent. Now that could be because I had a small sample size. We only had 125 people recruited into this study. So we had very small groups, but it could also just be environmentally. We don't really understand how gait is changing at the moment. And these studies are really unobtrusive. So we don't know where they're moving around, what they're doing. We need to get a better understanding of that as we continue to go on. So that's kind of where, where I'm at at the moment. I've got lots of plans for the future, but that's sort of the state of the research that we're at at the moment with me. And I love the idea that you're using sensors on the back to, to get that naturalistic sample. I think you probably need to put one on me because I confess I'm one of those people who falls over at least once or twice a year. And I generally attribute it to either a lack of concentration or poor depth perception with my glasses on, which kind of brings me to Keir in a way, because Keir, you've been looking more at um, vision and perception in terms of gait and dementia, haven't you, in your, your work? Yes, uh, that's correct, Anna. Um, so as we were discussing earlier, I wouldn't consider myself to primarily be a gait researcher, uh, but rather I've used gait measures to look at effects of clinical presentation so I work with people who have a condition known as posterior cortical atrophy that some people refer to as visual variant of Alzheimer's disease, but also to look at effects of environmental adaptations and conditions, again, on everyday walking, whether that's in a controlled movement laboratory, but increasingly we're interested in moving into more everyday settings. Now, where the role of the physical environment seems to be particularly important with people with more visual presentations, really arises from patient reports of things like people not being so confident when they're walking over certain surfaces. So for example, with pattern surfaces, people overstepping perceptual variations in flooring, patients mentioning things like glare or shadows being very disconcerting. And I'm talking about people who are experiencing some of these, in some cases, as the first symptoms of their underlying Alzheimer's disease, um, as well as really quite unsettling reports where people were walking across reflected surfaces that will mention things like, it actually looks like there's a sheer drop. Um, but a lot of these reports also somewhat chime with um, anecdotes we hear from people at more advanced stages of more considered to be typical Alzheimer's disease. So my first roles were actually working more in care home settings. And again, when we did focus groups with some staff and you ask people, well, actually, what does some residents struggle with? you get staff saying things like, well, actually people seem to walk very hesitantly around certain parts of the home. People will avoid, say, uh, this particular um, area where you have this garish carpet, uh, or also people not really being able to judge how much clearance they have when they're walking between furniture, and in some cases actually bumping into furniture. Um, so to return to some points raised by um, Sylvia and Riona, um, so, I'd like to start by saying, again, in line with my background not really being in gait assessment, when I first started working in this area, I, I, I kind of oversimplified 
I, th I think what you could actually derive from some of these movement sensors. So I thought, how hard can it be? You know, you're just going to attach some sensor on someone that'll give you all the information you want, you know, acceleration, velocity, displacement, you know, and position and GPS coordinates. However, as Sylvia's mentioned, unfortunately, it's not quite that straightforward. However, I've worked with engineers on a technique called as pedestrian dead reckoning. Now, this is something that I understand actually um, people like emergency workers can use to keep track of their position. So, so let's say you're a firefighter walking throughout a burning building and you've, you've got a motion sensor. It can give you not only acceleration and velocity, but you can also integrate what well, ideally corrected velocity to estimate displacement going back to a point of origin, which could be where you're actually coming into that burning building. So we've used this with people with, again, visual-led presentations of Alzheimer's disease and people with more memory-led presentations of Alzheimer's disease walking around an accessibility laboratory snappily called the Pedestrian Accessibility and Movement Environment Laboratory. But the advantage of this pedestrian dead reckoning technique is technically it's an infrastructureless technique, i.e. you don't actually need a gate laboratory to use it. Right. Now, an advantage of this technique is we can evaluate certain effects of environmental conditions. So for example, we can see about um, the directness of paths taken to a destination under different lighting conditions. We can also look at gate variability. So we've worked with people from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine on this approach called step time outlier detection, where you can take into account an individual's usual walking speed or even their walking speed under a particular condition. So let's say where you have high lighting variability and you've got lots of shadows, versus low lighting variability where you're controlling the extent of shadows and you can see where in that environment you might have disproportionately slow steps. Um, and I think, yeah, more widely, um, some of the interest we have again in uh, some of these measures is not only getting insight into gait disturbances, but looking at really specific aspects of again, postural control, whether it's on standing balance tasks, or again, with things like transferring from standing to sitting. Because for some patients I work with, not only those with this posterior cortical atrophy, but some people who have memory-led Alzheimer's disease, but then quickly develop a lot of secondary visual spatial problems, so they're missing where things are. They might also have a lot of difficulties with dressing. These symptoms can be really disabling and interfere with things like reliable transfers. Absolutely, and that can create a massive risk. I know having worked across hospitals, outpatients, care homes, you know, transfers and falls, are so, it's one of the first things that staff are, are, are anxious about and worried about. Um, so that said, we started with Sylvia. I'm actually going to come back round to Sylvia because I'm, what we didn't talk about was specifically more about your research around Parkinson's, for example. And I just wondered if you could share some of that with us. My research focuses on the implementation, if you want, creation of methods and analytics behind these uh, technologies, for example, in wearable sensors. So how do you get information from a signal? You need to create an algorithm, you need to create some sort of analytics that can get you that information. So that's my, my, my real expertise and interest. Um, obviously, as mentioned also by Kia uh, and we, um, you know, we have a lot of wearable technologies and a lot of them are maybe commercial devices, so somehow black boxes. So we don't really know how valid, how good they are in quantifying. So the first thing I did um, in my sort of uh, research was first we needed to show how well with analytics that I was implemented, we could 
uh, evaluate these gate parameters, these gate variables that we can derive from the gold standard. So for example, from the instrumented walkaway that Riona was mentioning. So the first thing I did was really a validation study and that was in people with Parkinson's disease and in people, um, older adults, so healthy older adults. And what we did was we compare the output that we could get from one sensor on the lower back to the output that we can get from the gold standard. And we saw that there was quite, quite um, a good validity apart from, and we need to be honest, uh, you know, every, all the methods are not perfect. We could see some discrepancies for some variability and asymmetry metrics as well. But we, um, we, we thought that possibly the sensor is potentially more sensitive to this type of, um, if you want, uh, slow movement or asymmetry and variability metrics rather than the gold standard itself. Anyway, once we did that, we were able to, if you want, then we were ready to utilize the sensor in real world condition. So then I moved into the real world condition and what we saw was that in people with Parkinson's disease, again, um, trying to identify some differences with, it, with the controls. We saw that in the lab, we could find some differences, for example, especially in, in, uh, in the pace domain. So people with Parkinson were walking with shorter steps and were slower. When we look at how they behave, you know, in the real life condition, we saw that all the differences that we found in the lab were exaggerated and we can find many more differences in real life condition than co compared to what we found in the lab. So not only uh, they were walking in a slower, we shorter step, but they were also walking in a more asymmetrical and variable uh, way as well. So therefore, uh, linking back to what I was saying um, at the beginning, maybe real world condition can really tell us much more of what we can see um, in the lab, or better can complement, if you want, what we can see in the lab or in the clinic. Then when, after doing that, so this was really a snapshot, and if you want, observation of, you know, how people with Parkinson can walk, what their gait impairment is. Uh, lately, mm -hmm. I've been moving uh, towards uh, the more the prodromal phase of Parkinson's disease. So we know that people before actually being diagnosed with Parkinson, there is a maybe 20 years where the disease might be starting, but the actual motor symptoms, for example, or other symptoms that can allow a diagnose um, are not there yet. So people have the disease, but they're not diagnosed with that. So I was able to collaborate with uh, Professor Walter Metzler uh, from Kiel University and also with uh, Professor Michelle Hugh from Oxford University and looking at two prodromal cohorts. And we found out that, um, you know, even though in these prodromal stages, uh, people that will possibly develop Parkinson's can also have already a gait, gait impairment. So something within the walking pattern and gait that can tell us that possibly they're gonna then um, develop, for example, Parkinson's disease. Um, within the work with Professor Messler, we found out that in specific gait characteristics, so gait speed, so the way that the velocity in which we walk, and again, um, step length, so uh, the length of our steps, can change and start changing for up to four years before actually being diagnosed. And that was very, very interesting because it's something that I presume is very fascinating. So if we are able to say, well, this is possibly a screening tool that we can use, and these are some you know, red flags and ringing bell that can tell us that possibly someone is gonna, is gonna develop Parkinson's or a risk of Parkinson's, then we can maybe intervene somehow with intervention, with rehabilitation, with drugs, if and when that will be available at the very beginning, and so prevent possibly also the disease to either appear or to obviously decline. So I think that's um, 
now, you know, that's quite interesting, I would say. But again, all goes back to the tools that we're using. Um, and if I have to say, my main interest is really be able to create analytics that are quite strong and robust so that mm -hmm. researchers like Riona or Kier or Anna or, you know, whoever wants to, um, to use them, um, they're sort of sure that they're using and they have like a valid outcome. Um, all of these, um, we have been able to create, if you want, an online platform that allows uh, people who want to collaborate with us to actually, wherever they are in the world, um, use our protocols, upload the data, and um, get the information that we can um, provide. So in terms of walking behavior, as Fiona was mentioning, and also in terms of gait characteristics, for example, as I was mentioning, gait speed, et cetera. And, and so, I don't know, it's just like if people are interested, they can um, look up and get in touch. Absolutely. That's a great idea. Look up and get in touch and look at all the tools you've got on that, res on that resource. And, and that, you know, that as a primarily a clinician or a clinician before I came, became a researcher in speech therapy, we'd often work with people with Parkinson's, but often we'd also work with people then before that, before they'd been diagnosed. And it is fascinating. You know, we'd have people referred for a voice issue and they'd walk into the clinic and there'd be no Parkinson's. And as soon as they walked in, the team would say, that's Parkinson's, just from the way they walked into the room. Um, and then as soon as they open their mouth and their voice, we'd hear the, 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 the quality of their voice, that would often add to that. And we'd say, yeah, yeah, we're probably Parkinson's. And then we'd refer them on. But it was, it's always fascinating that, um, that you can tell things from just watching someone. I confess I am one of those people in the community. I'll say to my husband, I think that person might have, <laughs> because you just tell by the way they're walking around. Um, and I think Gates becoming more and more of an area of interest, in fact, and uh, the focus of maybe more than a dozen posters and presentations at the recent AAIC conference. And I recall a poster from Margin Merling, I think, who found associations between gait disturbances with cognitive impairments and neurodegeneration, which is essentially um, part of what you're looking at, Rihanna, isn't it? So I, my question now is, I wonder how this area is going to change and progress in the next 18 months. Do you have any opinions, maybe coming to Rihanna first? So I think, do you know, I think this podcast has been really nice and complimentary because a lot of the things that I hope are going to be changing in the next 18 months or over the next few years have been kind of touched on and complimented by both Sylvia and Kia as well. Um, I think, you know, we are at the start with gait and dementia. There's been a, a long path get, getting here already, but we still have quite a lot of work to do. But the work is getting ready to go. As I said, I've been really fortunate when I did my PhD because I worked with Sylvia and I also worked with Professor Lynn Rochester, who are at the forefront of gait and Parkinson's disease. And that really provided me with a framework of what I needed to follow in order to look at gait as a diagnostic marker for dementia. So I think in the future, what we really need to do is we need to have larger studies and we need to do a large replication study that really includes a lot of biomarkers and follows people up to postmortem pathology to allow us to have confidence in what our results are. We need to be thinking about these kind of biomarkers like imaging and also um, blood biomarkers, but also not just that, other things that we could look at as well. For example, Anna, you're doing work with speech and language, and that might be a really complementary thing to come into where Gates sits within the best battery of things in the clinician's toolkit. 
I think the best way to do that, of course, is collaborative multi-centre studies so that we're not limited to one catchment area. There is some studies up and coming um, within this field. The dementia or the deep and frequent phenotyping study is looking at prediction of um, Alzheimer's disease in people with the ApoE4 gene. And that's going to be including gait along with a whole kitchen sink of biomarkers as well. So we might be able to find some interesting results within that. Um, we've already done a lot of the work in terms of finding a validated model with a comprehensive range of gait and assessing that within dementia and different dementia subtypes and examining the associations with cognition. But really now what we need to do is find out what is the relationship with pathology. Can we be confident saying, for example, step length variability is associated with pathology related to Lewy body disease? Is that something that we can actually say? And we need to find that out. Um, we've also found that wearables are feasible to use and may be effective to use in dementia and picking up what type of dementia a person has. But really, we need to be doing longitudinal work in prodromal cases. So can we predict what type of dementia a person has? Um, and does, does gait characteristics progress in reflect the progression of cognitive impairment and increasing pathology? So I think there is quite a lot of work to be done, but we are getting there. And also, I remember when I, when I published my paper on Alzheimer's and dementia on this, the, the kind of main paper for my PhD, a reviewer made a very good comment that, you know, I'm just looking at Alzheimer's and Lewy body disease. There is many, many types of dementia. Um, and, you know, Kia is talking about um, PCA as his type of dementia. So phenotypes of these Alzheimer's disease and so on may have their own signatures of gait impairment that we're not aware of yet. We need to look into that. But I do think that the work that has already been done has paved a foundation for people to continue to look at that. Yeah, I can see that um, with the devices, a collaboration with, uh, between what people wearing devices to measure gait and also to somehow capture naturalistic communication and conversation because that's one of the markers that we look at in speech therapy across um actually my area of research is mainly the rare language-led dementias which are primary progressive aphasias which also have much in common with some of the pcas the posterior cortical atrophies uh, patients in terms of you know the symptoms and the language and communication difficulties so it's, there's so much work to be done, isn't there? Keir, did you want to add anything else to that in terms of what you feel needs to or will happen or needs to happen over the next 18 months? Thank you. So just to add on to uh, Rihanna's point about phenotyping. So I think there's quite an interesting area that really sits at the intersection between phenotype and, say, environmental characteristics, whether physical or social. And of course, I'm slightly, you know, bang on about this because of work I've been involved in. But in a sense, when we look at gait response, we're really looking at almost a, a gait response to visual information. Um, so terms that, you know, a bit counterintuitive are things like an adapted gait response or perhaps even just say a visual motor function, but to do with how you really modulate walking and response to demands of the immediate physical environment. And I really hope that we'll see developments on this front, both in control settings and ideally in kind of community, you know, everyday settings. Now, we've really heard a great summary on the potential of gate measures in facilitating people getting to a timely and accurate diagnosis, and even its potential in differential diagnosis from RIANA in an area that I understand is particularly challenging in distinguishing Alzheimer's disease from dementia Lewy bodies. The area I think we're going to see hopefully some big developments in is the use of measures like gate measures to build capacity 
in environments that are currently considered quite challenging for high quality care research. So for example, and I'm you know, slightly shooting from the hip here, you might have some kind of intervention that's intended to reduce wandering, whether that's because it's to manage agitation, but one of your outcomes, so your second outcome measure is you know, the length, total path, um, distance, cumulative distance traveled within certain time windows. I, I would like to see work in that area. Um, again, going back to when I was um, based in care home settings, a lot of our outcome measures for interventions like cognitive simulation therapy were questionnaire based and they have suboptimal properties for a number of reasons, whereas there's something that's quite scalable about having wearable sensors. But for this to work, we need to have actual validation work. I think, I, I personally feel pretty strongly we can't cut corners, bang on lots of accelerometers and people and hope that something just emerges from it. I think there needs to be mixed methods approaches, people actually doing observational studies with some kind of hard ground truth measures about, say, functional independence, possibly provided by clinical interview. And some of the more blue sky areas that we might see, hopefully some developments in, is using things like gate measures or movement sensor measures in community settings to give us insights into symptoms that are really hard to investigate ecologically or um, really in a valid way through pen and paper or computerized tests. So the main one that comes to mind is spatial navigation. Um, for example, the people I work with with PCA, a core feature is environmental agnosia, but it's not like there's a very straightforward measure, at least that I'm familiar with and I'm very happy if someone wants to suggest it to me, where you can just go off a three-point checklist about environmental agnosia. So for us to really delineate are there different profiles of topographical disorientation, for some people is it more of a heading disorientation, for other people, it's more egocentric or allocentric. I think there might be some promise about sensor-based measures to really explore these symptoms, but in everyday environments. So are we still waiting for the ideal measure that will allow gates to become a mainstream kind of element of diagnosis? I think Sylvia will probably have some very good insight into that, actually. <laughs> I think so. So everything that has been said so far, I think, um, really points towards the fact that there is still a bit of work to do. Uh, more collaboration, more openness of um, uh, methods, uh, more maybe sharing of longitudinal databases, and more validation work to be done. And when all these boxes maybe have been ticked, definitely is going to be, I think, the dream and the goal that you know, gate can become an element, you know, a mainstream element of diagnosis, if not a complementary, maybe, element of diagnosis, because obviously we know that, you know, clinical scale and clinician will always, you know, want to uh, potentially use their, the, the clinical scale as a clinical-based um, assessment. But if we can get the analytics right, we've got data to validate and also to um, check against, for example, uh, you know, you validate in a, in a specific um, cohort and then you can actually double check in a, in a very similar cohort if what we've done is actually valid. Um, we can really create, I think, a very robust screening tool that can really help with diagnosis, support clinical decision making, and as I say, be complementary also in, in the clinical, if you want, field as well. Thank you very much. I think that's all we've got time for today. It's been such an exciting and passionate discussion. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you to all our guests, Rihanna, Keir and Sylvia. 
Now we have profiles on all of today's panelists on our website, including details of their Twitter accounts. If you would like to ask any follow-up questions, do follow them on Twitter and reach out. And if you're researching GATE or using GATE yourself, we'd love to hear more. Drop us a tweet using the hashtag ECRDementia or add a comment to this post. Now, while I've got your attention, I'd like to remind you that we have a great website. Um, it's called dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. So we'd like you to register today to get our weekly updates. And there you will find daily blogs, events, and details on all the latest funding calls and, and regular blogs from myself, I should add. So um, thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening and see you again. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.